Why do you say that, Father? You aren't afraid, are you? No. But I respect some of the superstitions of others. Often they are founded in fact. Broadcasting live from our Sanctum Sanctorum in Venice, California, this is the Sixth Sense Society. I'm your host, Krista, here with our producer, Michael, and today we are most excited to have on the show Kristen Harris, who is a historian and podcast host from Salem, Massachusetts, with an, a BA in Early American History from Penn State University and an MA in American Studies. And she's uh, focused, uh, in her MA, she focused on the death culture in America and paranormal media and tourism as a cultural study. So we want to have her on the show today because she researched a fascinating character called the the Salem Seer, I'm tongue-tied today, and uh, his name is Charles Foster, and she's going to be talking mostly about that, but we will spend some time getting to know her as well because she's a really fascinating lady. But before we get started, Michael has a few announcements. Hi, everybody, and welcome to our episode, and I'm really excited to have Kristen on. This is going to be a lot of fun for us, and Kristen and I have been to Salem a few times, and it's a fantastic experience. So if you guys are on the East Coast and you get to drop by, you should do that. Um, We've got some great shows coming up. We've got all kinds of new guests in line, so um, it's going to be a lot of fun next month. Um, Next week is going to be our first Spell It Out of the year, so Krista's free-for-all show where she will talk about something that Krista finds herself inspired to talk about. Um, and you can get all the information on our website, sixcentssociety.com, S-I-X-T-H, all spelled out. While you're there, if you can afford to, buy us a coffee on Ko-Fi. Um, and one of the best things you can do is just subscribe to the show if you're watching us on YouTube. So hit like and subscribe, and YouTube does pay attention to that, and it certainly helps us a little bit. Um, and subscribe to our newsletter as well. We'll let you know what's going on. But I'm not going to take up too much of our time because I want to get really into our, our topic because it's going to be so much fun. So with that, take it away, Krista. Great. Thank you, Michael. And welcome, Kristen. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. <laughs> well, we are too. I, I really enjoyed your article in um, The Feminine Macabre that talks about the Salem Seer. It was in volume two. And I thought, wow, what a fascinating character. But before we get started, let's talk a little bit about your journey to this point and what sort of led you to your interest, uh, both in your studies and, and what you're doing currently. Oh, well, uh, I mean, that started when I was really young. Um, I had a mother who uh, was very adamant about letting me sort of explore whatever topics I was interested in. Um, you know, and then, of course, as any young person does, I, I started with reading Anne Rice, to be completely honest. Um, so, you know, I read Anne Rice when I was a kid. I, I read a lot of books about the supernatural. Um, and then in high school, um, when I was 15, we did The Crucible. So um, I, from the age of like 15, 16, 17, just became obsessed with learning about, you know, uh, the witch trials first, the history of that, and then the paranormal. I watched, you know, Scariest Places on Earth when that was on TV when I was younger, Um, all these sort of paranormal shows that sort of started to pop up. And then I, as I got into history and college and everything, I sort of realized that the two 
sort of have to be together. And so when I got to grad school, I decided, you know, let's take a better look at why everyone has been so obsessed with this for so many years and sort of how this started and um, how it continues to sort of inform everybody's interest in the supernatural today. So it's been a long, long journey um, with many, many different steps in many different fields. And it led me to, you know, feminine macabre and um, Amanda on Spook Eats um, and submitting for that and actually being able to to share that work on a large scale. So it's been really, really great. <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's great that she is doing this because I've learned a lot about um, just all the different women doing things around the area that I never heard of before. So I really love that, that it's really helping to support more of that, you know, dispersion of all of the research and the interest of different uh, women and, and non-binary people. So it's, it's great. Um, yeah. Now you, you have an interesting career in that you seem to be able to sort of join your historical knowledge in creative ways. Uh, I know you've been a tour guide and you've done sort of, I, I think, um, uh, consultation for uh, a production company. Uh, so talk a little bit about that and, and what that's like. Yeah, um, you know, I I sort of went head first when I moved to Salem. So I, I'm originally from the Philadelphia area. Um, moved here for grad school. And, you know, my first sort of gig in Salem was working at the witch house, um, the Jonathan Corwin house as a tour guide. Um, and then I got into the realm of doing public tours. And a lot of that was ghost tours um, for various people. And um, then it just sort of took off from there. And by 2015, you know, I was a board member on the Salem Historical Society briefly. Um, I gave a talk to Historic Salem Inc. about paranormal Salem and basically sort of the evolution of interest in the supernatural in Salem from the 17th century to now. Um, because I think a lot of people in Salem, even still, a lot of people that have been here for a very long time, and a lot of historians still sort of balk at connecting Salem with the supernatural saying, you know, oh, it's not all about the witch trials or it's not all about ghosts and witches. Not every building is haunted. And that's true. But also, if you look at Salem's history, literally from the time of colonization and probably even before that um, to now, that every century there's been some sort of interest in the paranormal that sort of shaped the culture here. Um, and so I got then attached to Intramersive, who I still work with, and um, the Peabody Essex Museum, who sponsored their show, Smoke and Mirrors, which had to do with the politics of the realm of spiritualism and how that mm. sort of affected culture in different places and spaces. Um, and so I was brought on as their dramaturg. So what I did there is I actually coached the actors on their character building. So a lot of our characters are composites off of people who may have existed that sort of fits some sort of archetype, but some of them are also historical people. So in that one, we had Sophia and Nathaniel Hawthorne, um, which you have to be very careful portraying, especially <laughs> if you're doing it in Salem. Um, so that was a lot of work, but um, I sort of used that history to sort of bolster the actors and help them build those characters and sort of bring that to life and show people how that would have been if you walk into that century and you're talking to people about like the topic of spiritualism and you know if you have to make a decision then and there are high stakes can you do better if you're playing by that century's rules and so that's what really drew me to intramersive is the ability to sort of bring that into a theater realm and sort of immerse people in that world um yeah and so that's and now i'm just you know the crazy lady that continues to talk about the supernatural in salem and i wouldn't have it any other way <laughs> 
<laughs> I love it. So, so how did you find out about um, the Salem Seer? Uh, that actually was when I was working on my presentation for Historic Salem Inc. Um, for their annual meeting. And I think it was 2015. It's either 2015 or 16, but the years have gone very quickly. Um, but yeah, I was doing research into the supernatural and his name sort of popped up um, because I was looking into Danvers Asylum. And one of the things I looked into were articles. And I know you and I, before we started, we're talking about um, newspaper archives online. And I saw the news article, you know, this Charles Foster, the spiritualist and medium, you know, remanded to Danvers insane asylum. And I went, the Salem seer, who is that? And so I went down the rabbit hole further than I've ever gone that year. And, um, yeah, just discovered this autobiography about him that was done by a man from London, um, named George Bartlett. And then it just led one thing led to another. And I just sort of unfolded this fascinating story about someone who grew up in Salem and was living here during a time when spiritualism was the hot topic mm. and he got himself into that world. And so it was just, just that connection of that, that concrete connection is sort of, I think why I was so attached to him is like, here we have a person that unequivocally is the proof that the supernatural was always an interest in the society here in Salem. <laughs> That's so cool. Now, when, when was he born? What, what period did he live in? So uh, he was actually born, um, oh, I forget the year. He was born in the 1830s, I believe. And um, so it was 19th century. And um, he was born in Salem and he lived to 52 years of age. So he died in 1881. So um, he was born probably, you know, 1830s. And yeah, and he grew up in Salem. And what was so fascinating to me is that um, his parents apparently knew that he had this gift. And so from a very young age, he actually would um, talk to his parents about being able to communicate with spirits and being able to um, hear knocking and things like that. And um, what was interesting to me is that when he's talking about this and like, if you compare the age that he was when he started talking about this to his parents, it's actually before the Fox sisters even came onto the scene. Mm. Um, so it's always been fascinating to me whether or not he actually was hearing those things or he sort of, as his career sort of started, heard about the Fox sisters and decided to use that to legitimize his own practice. Mm. Um, so it's sort of endlessly fascinating to me how with spiritualist publications and, you know, we had the Boston banner of light here, um, which was one of the largest spiritualist publications for a really long time, even though New York was sort of the hotbed starter point for that. Um, and it's, it makes me wonder like how many mediums were sort of reading about each other and picking mm. up on different things that could sort of legitimize their own practice as this sort of exploded in the United States, uh, especially after the civil war. Um, when we see this really start to explode and become the popular sort of form of comfort, but also entertainment um, in the U.S. So, mm. yeah, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> so maybe if you could give like a brief um, description of what spiritualism in cases, anyone listening that knows nothing about it. Sure. So um, it's a lot of people sort of peg the the world of spiritualism as starting with the Fox sisters, um, Kate and Margaret Fox, uh, in Hydesville, New York in 1848. So these were two sisters that were living in a small, 
uh, house in Hydesville, New York, which apparently um, the foundation still exists. And um, there's like a recreation of that house that you can go visit. Um, I'd like to do that someday. But um, they basically started hearing rappings in the house and they started to knock back. And the family believed they were communicating with a spirit is what they said. And um, they then elaborated on it. They started bringing neighbors to their house. They started um, asking them to perform for people. And they came up with a name for this entity called Mr. Splitfoot. And they claimed that this was mm. someone who had been murdered and was buried in the house and all of these fantastical things. Um, but people so believed their ability to do this communication that they started actually performing at large halls in New York and upstate New York and people from different movements sort of attached to this. So different, um, what I like to say is philosophical movements, because I think spiritualism in itself became a philosophical movement more than anything else, because after the civil war, people were turning away from traditional, like monotheistic religions mm -hmm. and, you know, when you have that much death and destruction and uncertainty in the Victorian period, um, what they would call a good death, the ability to bury your loved one and know that you had helped them pass on. And then you have hundreds of thousands of people on battlefields mm. in shallow graves and you're unable to bring that home. The, the mass trauma from that caused people to start to look to these spiritualist mediums that claimed they could communicate with the other side, that they could communicate with your loved ones that had moved on, that they could give you that closure that you were seeking. And so the Fox sisters sort of started this, but you see people like Frederick Douglass, you know, Mary Peabody Mann, who is the sister of Sophia Hawthorne, um, you know, getting into this movement. Um, and, you know, Frederick Douglass is an abolitionist. Mary Peabody Mann is an abolitionist. And she's also someone who is reforming mental health care at the time mm -hmm. um, and sort of touring asylums and, you know, looking at these sorts of things. And I feel like spiritualism was just right at that moment where it was what a collectively traumatized country needed. Mm -hmm. um, and then it starts to spread elsewhere. You know, it starts to spread to London. It starts to spread to other places and people just attach to this and like wildfire. And so then more and more mediums start popping up and Charles Foster is one of those people. Um, and you apparently had several in New England that were famous. You had Lady Marjorie, who, you know, was investigated in Boston by Harry Houdini um, and, you know, uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who formed the Society for Psychical Research. And so this very quickly spirals into this whole world. Um, and Charles Foster is one of those people that just ends up thrust into this because he becomes so famous for his abilities. Mm. Now, I know in your article, you had some specific abilities he could do that I thought were interesting. Could you share that with the audience? Yes. Um, yeah. So two of the things that Charles Foster was known for were skin writing and pellet reading. So what pellet reading is, is he would essentially tell people to write messages or write things on pieces of paper, pellets of paper and they would put them in the center of the table and he would be able to receive messages on these pellets and pick out information based on a spirit telling him where that message is the message that they wanted to relay or um that this and he said that the spirits in the room could see where they put their pellets and they would give him that message. Um, the other thing is that he could make writing appear on his skin, um, different messages and things like that. And people said it would literally appear as like red welted scratches um, mm. that seemed to be spontaneous. So those were two of the things he was really known for. Yeah, the skin writing, I never heard about that. I mean, in modern paranormal shows, you see like scratches on people appearing. 
Um, maybe that's a version of skin writing, but I've never heard anything about it. Or uh, was that popular during that period? Or was he particularly just, that was his thing that he did? I, you know, I have not seen anybody else in particular with the skin writing. I'm, I'm probably wrong. I'm sure there were others. Um, but that was also the first time I had seen it. And I had, I had gone pretty far into examining spiritualism for my thesis, um, which was on the evolution of paranormal media and sort of the entertainment industry and how we can use that to talk about, you know, different um, traumatic events throughout our history. And that was the first time that I ever read that. So I don't know if it was something normal. I do know that using the body and using bodily functions was definitely something that was prevalent. Um, you know, Lady Marjorie in Boston, who was um, a woman named Mina Crandon, who was a famous medium, I know would sometimes make ectoplasm appear out of various orifices. And um, if your imagination has led you there, yes, you are correct. Um, <laughs> so Mina Crandon was sort of very famous for this and they did eventually figure out how she did it and they defrauded her. Um, but the skin writing, I think Charles Foster is definitely the first that I've seen. So now, in your opinion, was he legitimate? Was he, uh, I, I know that um, some of the, the Fox sisters were proven to be fraudulent and um, yet, nevertheless, spiritualism has continued and there's still a kind of an admiration for them, I think, in some ways. I think so. And I think, you know, there were people that investigated Charles Foster. There were plenty, plenty of metaphysicists at the time. Um, and actually, I'm trying to remember some of their names because it's actually been a while since I've looked at, but um, Washington Irving Bishop and some other people um, did actually come after him and examine him. Um, and they did, apparently one of the ways he was exposed in 1872 is by a man named John Truesdell, who noted that during seances, since he was a frequent smoker, he would repeatedly light matches for his cigars. And then he would approach the table um, while he was doing this. And basically because he was doing something with his hands, the guy posited that he was taking the pellets and reading them while he was having his smoke breaks and clearing the room. So there were different people that tried to sort of debunk him in this way, but, and, and then the, the Fox sisters did admit to being frauds. I know they admitted it themselves that they were cracking their, their wrists and their ankles to make some of the knocking noises and things like that. But I think for me, it's still fascinating just because people still attach to it and people still, for whatever reason, got meaning from these people for that small amount of time. So yes, a lot of them were frauds, but it's something that we're endlessly fascinated in. And it's something that started us on that journey with supposed psychic ability that we haven't turned back from. So I think that spiritualism, if anything, opened up the minds of people to the possibility that there might be things we don't understand. And that there might be people who are better at, if nothing else, reading other people mm. and knowing what they need in that moment. And I think that that's why spiritualism is important, is it shows that sort of intuitive side being explored a little more. That's a good point. The ability to read people is a, is, is a gift, actually, or something you have to work at and, and to do it very well. And it can be used positively or negatively. So I think, I think that's a great point. One of the things that's hard with... Um, Anything that is connected to the paranormal is that um, to have a discerning but open mind, because I know Edgar Casey, who really had a lot of um, genuine proof of his abilities, he was always asked to kind of prove this one ability where he could 
they could put like uh, a needle through him, but he had to hypnotize himself first and then he would heal it. And then one time he was doing it and they woke him before he had the time to do the part about the healing and he hurt himself. And no matter how many times he would do prove what he could prove, what that his abilities, there was always critics. So on the one hand, it's good to look for the frauds because we have them. On the other hand, there are certain people that no matter what you do, they don't believe it, you know, even if they can't right. find it. And and so it's kind of a an awkward thing in this in the spiritual paranormal world, I find. It is. And I think, you know, with Charles Foster, I mean, there were several mediums that performed and several mediums that performed in Salem. I mean, I remember finding an article um, from the Salem Gazette, basically advertising a medium at the Salem Theater. And um, this theater is oddly enough, the same theater that Harry Houdini and some others performed in. So like, you know, it's all moving within that same realm. And I think that it crossed into the realm of entertainment. And that's when people started using that to their advantage, right? Because there were spiritualists that were frauds that were definitely defrauding people out of a lot of money. Um, but then I think there were people that got kind of caught up in the mix that truly believed they might've been helping people. And from everything I've read about Charles Foster, he seems to be one of them. Um, and he seems like George Bartlett, who wrote his autobiography, um, sort of said that he took it very seriously and he took criticisms of himself very seriously and he would get like, he would get very down like and, and that doesn't strike me as someone who was actively trying to maliciously, you know, shice people out of money that that strikes me as someone who at least for a, a part of his career at least believed that what he was doing was right and we do know that when he was finally defrauded and he finally took himself out of the scene because he did it several times he actually took himself out of the scene several times because he got very you know self-conscious and and said you know maybe i should step back and step away several times and then he would come back onto the scene um but at the end of his life he did get very depressed um there is from the language i've discerned in in bartlett's biography and other people he might have had a problem with alcoholism and depression um and then he ended up remanded um, to Danvers State Asylum um, in the end of his life. And then he did pass away at his home uh, in Salem and had people, you know, that loved him attend his funeral. So clearly he was somebody who was very well loved, um, even at the end of his life. Mm. It sounded kind of sad at the end with the whole mental asylum and mental asylums that seem to have a, a very bad history, a lot of them, even though some of them started out good. I, I did see a documentary on some that started out really well, but then they were taken over and then they were completely converted into something that was abusive in terms of the space and the kinds of things. And um, so that has its own odd connection to the paranormal too. It does. Yeah. And, um, and it's interesting because one of the things we actually explored in the show that I worked on smoke and mirrors with um, it's called demonology is the series that intermersive does. And each demon demonology explores a different historical time period with the caveat of, you know, can you do better if you're put in that situation? Um, one of the characters that I helped create um, was a doctor from McLean hospital or McLean asylum, um, which does still exist in Boston today. Um, that has sort of always been at the forefront of therapeutic treatment as to, uh, which is a difference from a lot of the asylums that were popping up in that time. So treatment through, you know, fresh air and, and working and going out into the world with attendants and things like that. Um, and they are still one of the top research facilities for mental health, um, in the U S hmm. but, but it is interesting to sort of bring that in 
because it happened. There were mediums that, you know, were brought to asylums and things like that. Um, so it was really interesting to sort of explore that side of it. Um, what what that can do to somebody. Well, and that seems to be still a current problem with um, some people that will have these abilities and they can't handle it. And so they, and, and people, I've talked to people that don't really want it. And so they will try to ignore, press it or use alcohol to sort of deaden it. And uh, and then there there, there is this, um, I don't know, this fine line between is it a mental illness if you are in the psychic world or not? Because I think sometimes it is a mental illness and sometimes it's not. It's just that we don't understand the mechanism. So that's my own right. understanding based on being in the world and reading about all of it and, and meeting people um, and some that, that have been institutionalized, you know, that, that still have some abilities. So this is kind of a tricky area, I think, still. It is still, it is still. And um, yeah, it's just something that has actually always been an interest of mine is, is the connection of like where, who actually gets to decide where that line is. Um, and I think it comes down to the individual really. Um, it really like you have to decide where that line is, I guess. Um, but it is still just a sticky area when we're talking about um, different abilities and different exploring different um, realms of human ability and things like that. Uh, and yeah, it's, it's, it's very, it, as you said, very sticky sort of topic. Yeah. Now, um, that particular, it was, uh, what was that asylum? Danvers Insane Asylum. That's no longer there, right? It was torn down or? It, so <laughs> this is um, <laughs> this is my sort of, you know, if you want ghosts, that's how you get ghosts uh, sort of thing is they did tear it down, but the condominiums that are built there now were actually built in the footprints of the original buildings. Mm. So the original buildings were torn down. There are now condo buildings. The Kirkbride building, which I used to have a picture right behind me, but it's uh, not there anymore. Um, the Kirkbride building, which is sort of the main intake building, is still the main facade of the building. So that is still in existence where like the main entrance to the condominium place is. Um, but if you look at an aerial view of Danvers State when it was first built and you look at an aerial view of the condos, it's literally almost point for point the same footprint. So, mm, wow, that is kind of a ironic. I don't know the luxury condominiums from it, you know. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's an odd thing. And it's, it's interesting, too, because the burial ground for a lot of patients is actually still on the property. Um, if you go like down a little hill through the woods, you kind of have to know where the path is. Um, but that's still there, the memorial to the people that, that died in the asylum. So it's a very, it's a very sort of, um, uh, it gives one pause to sort of go there and see this like luxury condominium and then that little forgotten graveyard in the woods. So, hmm. yeah. Oh, wow. Do they have any sort of like evidence of, of hauntings there? Has anyone ever like explored it? Um, there were people I know, uh, that, lived in Salem that did explore it. I actually met someone who used to work for a local tour company as security um, during October that uh, used to work there. And he said, even when he worked there, it was haunted, even when it was still open, mm. um, that he would walk past a room and then go back to tell somebody that it was lights out because he saw them sitting on a bed and then realized, wait, if someone was in there, this door wouldn't be open, you know, uh, sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, so there's definitely been reports of activity even before it closed. And apparently there are people that have moved out of the condos um, because of activity and things like that. So mm. no I, I, can't, I can imagine that that's a very highly charged place. 
Yeah, I would think so with the kind of, you know, thing it was built upon, you know, anything where you have that kind of suffering and amount of people too. It sounds like some of those, I know some of the asylums had a lot of people in them. So. Right. Yeah. Literally. I think Danvers is no exception. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Now going back a little to Charles Foster, you know, so it's interesting that, you know, he also, when you think of mediums today, you, you tend to think still a little bit more of women, even though there's some famous male mediums and the fact that he, you know, was sort of termed the Salem seer by somebody, I guess. And, and, and what was it like? It sounds like there were women and men. What do you think it was like an equal amount during that period of time that were Um, mediums? I, I think that women were the, definitely the leaders in the spiritualist movement. And I think that a lot of the more influential people were women. Um, and it became, I, I think in the 19th century, early 20th century, almost the political action Um, for a lot of women spiritualists, there was this time for them to be, you know, out in the public sphere in this very big way, making this connection to people and holding this sort of power dynamic. Um, And I think that that is definitely something we shouldn't overlook is that for women, this was their moment to sort of be the leaders in the cultural shift Um, in a time, you know, in the 19th century, when we're starting to see like women's rights getting a little more and more suppressed as we go through that time period. Mm -hmm. So I think that's very important to note. Um, But there are, you know, men mediums as well. And uh, especially in a lot of the things that I've looked at for the Society of Psychical Research and the American Society for Psychical Research, which is, you know, founded shortly after the one in London. um, There were men mediums. I don't necessarily know if it was an equal split, though. I feel like the ladies definitely led that. Mm -hmm led that movement a lot. Well, it, it still seems today, I would think there's more, at least publicly more women mediums than men, though there's certainly quite some quite famous mediums, uh, male mediums too. So, but I was just kind of curious if that was, you know, similar during that time or different. And yeah, it makes sense that, that, that the spiritual realm, to be honest, I think that that idea of power for women is still really prevalent in um, the spiritual movement, whether it's yoga, which where women, especially Western women, really took it to this whole commercial level through their hard work and effort, whether you like it or not, there's still something about it that women could could own. And I, I sometimes feel like that is a positive and negative because as a female, it is easier, like if I go into the metaphysical world, to sort of find a voice and power than if I decide to be an investigative journalist still. And, and so I think it's, it's got its pros and cons in this day and age, but I still think that's true that women can naturally find power and influence in that world. I think so. And, um, you know, I think that's also why, you know, exploring Charles Foster for me was important just because it's somebody you, it is somebody that I had never heard of. It's somebody that I know a lot of people haven't heard of. And a lot of people I know who have studied the spiritualist movement, some who have studied it even longer than I have, um, had never heard of Charles Foster. And that's kind of why I wanted to highlight his story. Um, and in regard to you saying it's so difficult, like it's a, it's a pro and con for women. It totally is. And I think even still it is. Um, and that's why I think like feminine macabre is so important because Amanda, you know, did this fantastic job of taking all of us and sort of highlighting the work of women in this field, because I think with a lot of the ghost shows, at least for me, like for a while, it was a little bit of a boys club. And I think that's sort of the unspoken thing in the room. And even for me in a lot of the paranormal realm that I've been in at conferences and things like that, there's a little bit of a boys club. Um, and I think that it's, it's good for me at least to see 
more women sort of becoming the experts in a lot of this research and sort of not becoming because they were already there. And that's the point I think is like, they were already there for so long. And I'm learning about so many more women in this field, um, whether it is the investigative portion, whether it is, you know, the metaphysical portion or the historical portion. And, um, and it's really great to sort of see that. So I think it does have its pros and cons, but I definitely think that, um, it's definitely more of the pro. <laughs> well, yeah, and in the paranormal entertainment world, absolutely, it's a boys' club. Still, there's no doubt about it. Uh, I think for me, um, what I think I'm speaking to is that as a, a tarot reader myself for almost 25 years, um, from my experience making a living professionally, it's dominated uh, by women, and that working through bookstores and and that in terms of a profession when it comes to doing mediumship or card readings, they have been able to find fairly easily um, a place there. And again, it's, it's, it's positive for sure. But I also feel like um, I'm my main sort of like concern is that we still break through the other areas. And I think from, from my point of view, it's still not really there yet, you know, for women, because I, I mean, I think I've met some women, I think would have stayed in their field whatever it was, and they had these abilities, so they would have been using it. But I feel I think they were more pressured because they could actually make a living. And that idea that can we make a living the way we want to yet fully, and I don't think that's true for women yet, though it's certainly much, much better than, you know, even 20 years ago. And um, so, and I also, you know, look at the archetypal energy, like, for instance, my husband, Michael, when I first met him, it, you know, he was sort of not seen necessarily as a psychic and that Mm. there's also sometimes not always, but there have been a bias against men that I have seen personally in um, the magical world. And again, Mm. it was more like, well, you know, women are naturally intuitive and women are naturally psychic. And and that that's actually not quite true. And and I think that that women have been able to get into that world very easily and um, because they weren't allowed in other places and so, right. and I, I'm not sure that that is, that's a human thing, the ability to be psychic or spiritual or medium. And, and so I, I'd like, to me, I want to see that just honestly looked at and not a bias one way or the other, you know, not yeah. so, but I agree with you, the paranormal world, for sure, in terms of the, especially entertainment and, and also the serious, you know, research for paranormal. I, we completely agree with you that, that it has been, and still is a boys club, really. Yeah. And and it's really, it's really interesting to hear you speak on that too. Um, because, you know, I find that in Salem too, that like a lot of the metaphysical sort of realm of that is dominated by women in Salem. It definitely is dominated by women. Um, and I know like a few male readers, but there's definitely, it's definitely overwhelmingly women, even though there are some very talented men readers that I know. Um, and so, yeah, it's really interesting to sort of think about, about that for me, just because I haven't really been in that realm. I've been around it, but I haven't. Um, but yeah, that definitely is something to think about that we, A, aren't quite there yet for, for women breaking into other areas, obviously, but also that there is a little bit of a slant towards women in, in that field too. So that is like really definitely something to think about. Also the idea that, that we have, um, I think we're meant to develop our psychic abilities as humans, but maybe using them in all fields. Like I met Mm -hmm. uh, a woman, uh, one of my clients is, uh, I think she's like a nurse practitioner and she's always listened to her intuition. And she said one time she was um, doing an examination of this man who had no symptoms of any 
thing around his heart. But this voice said, you need to have these tests done for him. It's really important. And so she trusted this intuition and she saved his life. There was something that just wasn't showing up in anything until they did these tests and he would have died. And she said, I said, see, the psychicism is meant for all fields. It's meant for the intuitive is meant. And so not just the reading area, not just that, that we have it in, in, business and and you know we, we we you meet business people that that have that say you know they rely on their their intuition and their abilities so i think to me that would be sort of the next stage of consciousness is that that we apply it everywhere you know yeah no i would love yeah i would definitely like to see that um to see that burgeon and to see that sort of be more accepted and more um more used in a, in a variety of fields. I think that that is the next step. The next logical step is to sort of think about where we've already been with the belief in that and think about why, you know, it's, when I think about Charles Foster, I think about how fascinated people were with this idea that people have these sorts of abilities and intuitions. And now I think about, you know, how that has sort of shifted. And now there's definitely a lot more skepticism in the world, I think. The skepticism was there in the 19th century, you know, obviously with the different investigators that sort of were the birth of paranormal investigation came from spiritualism. It came from people showing these abilities or having these perceived abilities. And so right, you know, right from the get go, there was that movement to say, well, let's examine this further. Um, and it did lead to, you know, defrauding some people, but I also think it led to yeah, just this sort of stopping point for us with it. I feel like there's this sort of wall still with that, with that level. Yeah, yeah, I agree. So have there been other sort of interesting um, characters that you've discovered related to Salem's history that you think are worth, you know, people knowing about in your own research? Oh my gosh, so many, um, you know, and I think um, I, I was saying earlier that um, I love studying the supernatural history of Salem, you know, so that I love studying how that has shifted our culture here. And it's not just haunted happenings. You know, it's not just Lori Cabot. It's not just the seventies. Everyone always likes to say, oh, well, all that started in the seventies with Lori Cabot. And that's not true. I mean, she definitely put us on the map for um, a lot of, for this being sort of a haven for modern witchcraft practitioners and things like that. Um, but the spiritualist movement definitely did that too. I mean, Sophia Hawthorne, who is the wife of Nathaniel Hawthorne, the famous Nathaniel Hawthorne, who everybody, you know, has either at one point read the Scarlet Letter or the House of Seven Gables or Young Goodman Brown or any of those stories that are sort of American literature masterpieces. Um, his wife was super interested in the spiritualist movement. Mm. And uh, they actually attended a seance when they were in Italy. Um, and it's in his Italian notebooks, him sort of giving this account of essentially, yeah, my wife dragged me to this thing and I don't really believe it, but I went because she wanted to go. And like, so <laughs> I always think that's hilarious. And Nathaniel Hawthorne is like the eternal curmudgeon, right. um, but we love him dearly. In <laughs> um, but yeah, he, she was very interested in mediumship and actually both Nathaniel and Sophia believe that their daughter Una had abilities um, one way. They never really explicitly said what that was, but um, the character of Pearl in the Scarlet Letter is actually based off of Una, off of the Hawthorne's daughter. And, you know, we see Pearl in that novel having these sort of preternatural aspects to her and these sort of very flighty, almost fae-like features um, and intuition when it comes to the adults in the room. 
And they get a lot of that from Una. Um, mm. And it was thought that she had some sort of connection or ability um, by a lot of people that was never really developed, but they definitely saw something that was different about Una. And I think that's really fascinating. There seems even, to be a lot of, uh, a lot of books and movies that are connected to literally Salem. And I don't even know half of them, I'm sure, but it just seems like it does have this sort of vortex energy of people just wanting to participate in some way with the with Salem and its supernatural and I think that's still there and still growing it is and and I and it's I love telling that story about Nathaniel Hawthorne because um one of the enduring things let me tell you it is tough being a tour guide because you have to learn how to play nice in the sandbox that's the biggest thing is um there's so many tours in Salem you really got to play nice in the sandbox um but one of the things I always hear in sort of these enduring rumors about Salem that I consistently try and destroy is that, you know, Nathaniel Hawthorne wanted to distance himself from, you know, the history of the witch trials. And he was very ashamed of his like great, 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 great grandfather who was a witch trial judge. And that is true. Um, he is descendant from John Hawthorne, who was one of the judges during the witch trials. Um, but if you look at Nathaniel Hawthorne's writing, I mean, he did anything, but right. He's writing about Puritan punishments in the Scarlet Letter. And I kind of see that as his, like almost his penance of talking about what that actually means and what that persecution actually was. But what I always find fascinating about it is that what Hester Prynne got in the Scarlet Letter, that, that embroidered Scarlet Letter in actual Puritan punishments, that might've been a brand. Um, so it wouldn't have been a pretty embroidered thing. So the punishments actually minuscule based on what it really could have been um, during the 17th century for a crime like adultery. Um, and then it goes even further though, you know, he's got that sort of homage and I almost see that as like his penance for the shame that he felt for that part of his family. But then you look at, you know, the house of the seven gables where he's talking about ghosts and hauntings and witchcraft. And then you talk about young Goodman Brown, where he's writing about a witch's Sabbath in the woods in New England in the fall and all this. So, you know, Nathaniel Hawthorne himself, while he had that connection that supposedly he was ashamed of in his family, he definitely didn't distance himself from it. He made quite a good living for himself from it, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think that if Nathaniel Hawthorne can embrace Salem's spooky side, then I think all of us can too and do with gusto. Mm. <laughs> That's a great story. No, I didn't know anything about that with Nathaniel Hawthorne. So that I'm sure that's important to bring out. And I'm sure a lot of people appreciate it in the tours that you do. Yeah. And it's, and I always have a great time because I think that there's so many people that come here um, who just, who want that. They want to be a part of it, like you said, and they want even in some small way to learn about it because Salem, I think just has fascinating history in every time period. And we definitely put ourselves on the map with the history of the witch trials and being that constant reminder of that event. But there's just so much more. And I think, and I think that's why people come back every year because there's still so much more they want to see. And there's still something they're looking for here. And, um, and I think that you can't help, but wonder, you know, what that supernatural pull is besides the tourism. Like what is that pull that Salem has? Cause it definitely has it. Mm. I'm wondering, too, because of, you know, the the pandemic and the amount of death that people have personally experienced through the last couple of years, if there's going to be some sort of a ripple effect on the supernatural, if it has not already started to happen a little. I don't have any ideas how it would look since people are already more open to, you know, with with the supernatural, with the paranormal shows and 
um, you know, just in general. But I, I feel like maybe it could have some sort of a, a impression on that world too. I think so. I mean, yeah, I don't know what form that is going to take. I do know this past year um, I worked and I hopefully I'm going to continue to work with um, Bewitched After Dark Walking Tours, who does strictly the history of the witch trials. So it's been a little bit of a divergence from my usual paranormal things, but I do still get to throw some tidbits of other history in there along the way, just for geographical purposes and sort of orienting people to the continued history after 1692. But one of the things that I did consistently get this year was what, like, what is your message with this? Like what all the death, like what is the message to take from it? And that's definitely a question that I feel like I've gotten way more this year. Um, people are looking for what, what, how they progress from that sort of tragedy. And I think that the interest of how Salem progressed after that tragedy has come out more and more. And I think that comes from the collective trauma of what everybody went through. And so I definitely feel like there is this push to, well, what now? What happened after has been way more of an interest than the nitty gritty of the events themselves ah. this year. So I'm wondering if maybe that's part of it is, is the, the after, the aftermath right. has become more interesting for people than I've seen in years past. I like that thought. That is interesting. It'll be interesting to see the phenomena. Now, I'm kind of curious as to since you seem to really have a connection to Salem and not, you know, not everybody does that even lives in Salem. Do you think you might have had some kind of a past life there that Ooh. you're picking up on or that you connect to it more naturally than maybe some people? Um, to be honest, I haven't really explored that. Um, I've not, I've, I've sort of been you know, stepping my toe into certain parts of the metaphysical, you know, in my own practice, because I, I am a solitary practicing witch myself, but it is very like personal. It's a very personal practice of mine. Um, but I definitely have always felt a connection here. Uh, the first time I came here, I was 15. Um, and that was, you know, when I first got into the witch trials, I did what everybody else does. I came to Salem to learn about it. I went to the witch house. I went to the house of seven gables. I went to as many historical sites as I could. Um, but yeah, for some reason, it just ended up landing me back here. And I think part of it had to do with getting into a grad school in Boston. But I remember specifically saying to my now husband, we were engaged then. And I remember saying, well, why don't we look in Salem? Have you ever been there? And then I took him, you know, for his first time to Salem. And yeah, I definitely, I don't think I could imagine leaving. And I think that if I did, it would be very hard. Um, not only because of the community that I've built here, because Salem does have an excellent community of support. Um, but I think, yeah, there is something, there's something about it that keeps me here. Still, still haven't put my finger on it, but I would be interested to explore that. It seems like a natural to you because you can, you can see your enthusiasm and passion for it, you know, and that to me is at least a sign that on some level you have some connection, whether it's a past life or who knows, a uh, genetic lineage. <laughs> I don't Maybe. Know. I mean, I, I definitely have studied my genealogy a little bit. Um, and I, I have a long way to go, but we will see. <laughs> now you also I do, um, to explore that, though. <laughs> that you, you have an interesting, um, podcast and I looked at, you know, some of the episodes and listened to a couple and I, I wanted to listen to the first one, but then I, I, I couldn't get it to start for some reason. The witch is back. It was about the famed fortune teller of oh. Lynn Mole Pitcher. 
So that yeah, intrigued that- me. I always like to find out, you know, about new people in my, you know, metaphysical world. So she sounded oh, yeah. interesting. Oh, I can totally go off on a tangent about Mall any day of the week. Um, <laughs> she um, was a woman named Mary Pitcher who lived in Marblehead, Massachusetts, which is just north of Salem. I mean, if you've been to Salem, you might have gone to Old Burial Hill in Marblehead. Um, people like to go there for Hocus Pocus because that was one of the filming locations. Um, but it's also just a really beautiful old 17th century um, burial ground that's really pretty to go to. But she lived in Marblehead and her grandfather and father were ship captains. Um, and she eventually marries a shoemaker and they live in Marblehead, but eventually they move somewhere on the Lynn side of things. So she's born in Marblehead, ends up in Lynn, Massachusetts, which is, you know, those are on basically either side of Salem for those who haven't been here. And she's was known as the Pythoness of Lynn. Oh. Um, but, but she was called that by um, Whittier, who did a poem about her, about um, Mall Pitcher of Lynn. And so that was his sort of ode to her as a piece of local folklore. So I don't think she was called the Pythoness when she was alive, but uh-huh. she definitely was, was called that later by Whittier. Um, and apparently because being the wife of a shoemaker. So another part of my work is that I work full time for the Boston Tea Party Ships and Museum um, for the creative department. And so it's 18th century first person interpretation dealing with colonial Boston. So um, I started exploring her because I did an, uh, a character composite for an event we do called Revelry on Griffin's Wharf, which is basically we turn our back deck into a working 18th century wharf mm. and people can visit merchants. They can talk to different people and characters and things. And what Mall Pitcher did is she read tea leaves for people. Um, And if you know anything about maritime history is that there's always a lot of superstition wrapped up in sailor lore and pirate lore and things like that. And so apparently ship captains in Salem, because it was a major port at the time and other places would actually go visit her to get their leaves read um, before journeys. And there actually was a ship and the the name is escaping me at the moment, but um, there was a ship that actually halted a voyage because of a reading from Mall Pitcher. Wow. Um, Yeah. So she, but the wife of a shoemaker, you know, oftentimes would either do laundry, like you could be a laundress or you could do something else to make some extra money on the side. And so that was pretty common. And she even like roped her daughter into it. Like her daughter would help her with it. And apparently she had this special table and sometimes her daughter would like pass her things under the table. So it was a little bit of a, a little bit of a um, hustle game for them, (laughs) but people believed it. And so, um, you know, obviously Boston tea party, tea leaf reading, they thought it was a good connection. Um, (laughs) and there is a little bit of local folklore that she may have warned, um, some of the local militia that major Pitcairn was taking troops to Concord to try and reclaim the famous weapons that were stolen right before April 19th, 1775 shot her around the world. Um, because apparently major Pitcairn, who was the major in the British army for those troops um, went to visit her. So that's a little bit of local folklore with ah. that. Um, we don't have any proof of that because the man that supposedly she told we know was somewhere else at the time based on documentation. Um, but, you know, she was a local figure that people went to for tea leaf reading. So again, just another connection with this area with the supernatural and belief in the supernatural and things like that. <laughs> that's awesome. She sounds like a real character. I, I noticed that it seems like tea leaf reading is more East Coast than West Coast. And at least when I was living on the East Coast, more people tend to do it or know about it. And of course, you've got the the um, um, Mediterranean people with the coffee grounds and Middle Eastern Mm -hmm. people. But here it's not as popular on the West Coast. 
Oh, wow. That's really interesting. Yeah. At least not in, in LA. There's, there's very few. Wow. Yeah. Very few yeah, tea leaf um, readers. Uh, if I had any guess, like an educated guess, I would probably be um, just the amount of Scottish and Irish immigrants on the East coast. Um, because the, what I actually found in my research for her is there was a, a, a grimoire on Tassiomancy that was published in the 18th century in Scotland. Um, so this was such a belief, a, a folk practice in that area for cunning folk or what we call cunning folk, which were people that were practicing, you know, magical traditions and folk traditions, um, and, and magic traditions that go back generations. And Tassiomancy was one of them. Um, so from my understanding, at least it tends to be a very Scotch Irish sort of thing. Mm. Um, I'm sure there are other cultures that use it as well. Like you said, with the coffee grounds in the Mediterranean and middle Eastern, so there are various forms of reading things like that. Um, but Tassiomancy definitely has its roots in, in Celtic culture. Yeah, no, that, that makes total sense. Uh, I, I've done it a little bit. It's, it's a lot of fun. I had a friend that would do it for you for free and she, she was Persian and, uh, she did her every morning. She did her her coffee grounds, and she she would show me how to do it too. It's kind of cool. She says, "See, look in here. There's this, you know." And and it's if you can sort of see cloud shapes, you can see things in the tea leaves. It's just, I mean, at least to get going on on seeing shapes and things. Yeah, it's it is fun. And actually, um, little personal history. Um, my great great grandmother actually used to read tea leaves for the people in the neighborhood in Philadelphia and Bristol. Um, when she, and she came over in. 1912, I believe, 1912, 1914 from Ireland. Um, and she used to read them for people in the neighborhood. So um, when I was first sort of uh, getting into studying my family history and I, I mentioned something to my grandmother about it, I remember her being like, your great-great-grandmother used to do that. I remember her having clients in the house when I came over to visit. And I was just like, oh. Wow. <laughs> so that was really cool to find out. That is really cool. You don't necessarily necessarily learn that about your great great grandparents so that's that's yeah. neat that that's in your history have you tried it I have yeah because uh, when I created mall picture they were like well you're gonna do it then and I was like okay so um you know I got my 18th century digs on and I even you know found an article from the American Antiquarian Society that she used to wear a black bonnet was like her signature sort of thing huh. so they gave me an 18th century black bonnet to wear and everything and like I mean we went ham for accuracy with this and, and I did do it. And I actually found that I was pretty good at it. And I had never done it before, but I did at least read that grimoire. And I researched like a little bit about some of the things people said about tea leaf reading and, you know, what up means, what down means, what closer to the center means, what closer to the edge means and all of that, um, just to sort of get myself going. Um, and apparently I scared one of my boss's mothers. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> so I said something about um, as it's a former coworker of mine whose mother and aunt were there. And apparently there was some sort of family feud going on that I was completely unaware of. And I had said something like, oh, someone close to you. There's a lot of conflict I'm seeing coming very soon. And apparently she went up to my coworker, Jillian, and was like, how did she know? <laughs> and I was like, get in. <laughs> well, yeah, my understanding is that that traits do seem to run in families um, from my own sort of research, just like any other genetics, like you might have a predisposition to clairvoyancy because you it's in your family or a person may be clairaudient, just like, you know, green eyes or brown eyes. It's it, it does carry through sometimes. And, and you can see it according to this palm reader I used to go to uh, Mad George. He was awesome. He could sometimes look at your palm and say, well, you have, you know, in your you know background, you can predict things or you're clairvoyant or so he saw it in the palm which 
tends to be genetically connected a little bit too. Mm-hmm. So wow. that's, that's yeah, cool. I, I, yeah, I definitely think that something carried over. Uh, <laughs> something did. I can definitely feel that a lot, that something did carry over. <laughs> well, I, I think, you know, it's really great that you are, you know, telling the stories of people like Charles Foster and um, bringing them to light. Cause I just think it gives it a lot of depth and, and, and you know, it's always good to find out about new people. Uh, I did want to sort of shout out to people that you can contact um, Kristen at her website, life at after midnight Salem, all one word.com. It's going to be on our website. We always put the contact information up there so you can go there if you want to contact her. And Kristen is also on Instagram and TikTok. The Instagram is at Life After Midnight Salem, and the TikTok is That Girl from Salem. <laughs> so, so make sure if you want to contact her. And um, but we've really, um, it's been great, sort of, you know, talking to you about. You do know so much about the history, and I like the combination of of the creative side of it too, with with what you're doing. You know, the reenactments and. And the tour guides. It must be a lot of, of tours now in Salem. And are, are they getting going now again after the, is it still awkward in terms of the guides because of the pandemic? Uh, no, because luckily most of them are, you know, entirely outdoors. Um, so there definitely are guides that, you know, will wear a mask if they feel um, if they feel safer and like they, we allow our guests to wear them if they want to and everything like that. Um, October was definitely crazy. It was definitely um as crowded as I've seen it in the past. Um, and I think right now is sort of the off season for a lot of tours, but come March, you'll start to see it slowly amping up again. There are people that want run year round on the weekends and weekend nights. Mm. Um, but you'll definitely see that picking up from we're we're a March to January town. Um, it's not just October. You will see tours all summer long. Um, and visitors all year long. So there's always a good time. <laughs> oh, that's interesting, too, because you definitely think of it more as like, you know, October, you know, November being like the height, but that it's it's that, you know, prevalent. That makes sense, though, because it is also just a very historic area and people have different times they can leave and go on vacation. Yeah, I mean, October definitely is the big shebang. I mean, it's 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 the most crowded part of our season. It's the funnest part of our season, in my opinion. People have various opinions on that, um, but I think it's the funnest time of year. Um, it's it's a beautiful time of year. It's 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 really special. You know, I think it is special in its own way. Yeah, I totally agree. There, it's one of those places I would say would be good for anyone to visit once, and particularly during October, because when I granted I was I was interested, but I still felt like it was so diverse. The different things that you could participate in, it was a very memorable experience. And, and I think it's one of those things that many, many people would actually enjoy going there. Yeah. I think if you're prepared for it, if you're prepared to, you know, wait in some lines, have a lot of people around, as long as you're prepared for that, you're going to have a good time. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I'm sure it's probably much more crowded than when I went in the nineties, I guess that was the last time I've been to Salem though. Hopefully I'll oh, get, yeah. I'll get to visit it at some point again. We don't know though, cause we're on California. We're kind of been here a long time, me and Michael, yeah. my husband. So but anyway, thank you so much for coming on the show, Kristen. And uh, we hope to have you back at another point. Maybe we can talk about, you know, a little bit more about the witch trials in Salem. I've always wanted to do a show somewhat around that theme. And I haven't sort of figured out, you know, what what we can do. But it's it's just a great theme. And there's so many ways you can kind of, you know, attack it in a sense. And I think it'd be great to have you back at some point to talk about that. 
Oh yeah, I'm game if you're game. I had a lot of fun. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, you're <laughs> most welcome. And and thank you everybody for tuning in. Join us next time as we continue to explore the esoteric and the obscure together. Have a magical week. <laughs>